morning. Grab your Bible. We are going right back into it. We're going back into 2 Corinthians. And uh, uh, yeah, go grab the word, man. That's what we're here for. So I won't waste a whole lot of time talking about a million other things other than to say, as I always do, that this is not church. This is, in fact, just me preaching the word. Um, I, I say just. It's not a small thing. It's a big deal. It's God's word. But you know what I'm saying. This is me unpacking the word tonight when we gather together that's the church that's when we gather together as a family uh as the body of christ and we'll have a great time we'll get into his word we'll talk about this text uh we'll um hang out we'll do some prayer time you're welcome to come we're in tempe arizona we'd love for you to be part of part of what we do and spend some time with us let's get to know you and and you know us and all that stuff so uh you want to know how to find us you can find us online multiple ways uh, through social media, through uh, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff, or you can uh, go to the website, email me. I don't whatever you want to do. We'll tell you where to find us. We'd love for you to come hang out. Um, but now we're going on. So go back into Second Corinthians. Where we've been working through this for quite a while now. We're actually within a couple of weeks of being finished. So Second Corinthians uh, chapter twelve and thirteen is what we're going to look at today. Our theme has been through this whole thing from First Corinthians where Paul said, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So a couple more weeks. This week we're going to look at the threat of power. Something that Paul really punches a, a throat punch, I would say here. <laughs> the threat of power. And and you'll see that as we unpack it. But you ever felt threatened? Have you, have you ever been in a position where you felt threatened. When I say that word, threatened, what what comes to mind? Who comes to mind? You know, is there an enemy? Is there there a thief? That's ha- something that's gone on in your life, or or do you picture that as being something threatening? Or maybe you picture your father. Maybe you picture a family member or something. I, I don't know what you picture when you think of the word threatened. Uh, maybe a teacher or a leader or something. But what about times when you were a kid and you'd been disobedient and your mom came out with the belt? Or at least I can say, <laughs> I can say that. Maybe yours didn't. But you know what I'm trying to say. What kind of threat was that? You know? And before you can understand, understand excuse me, that kind of threat, you have to understand the genuine threat of sin. You have to understand sin as a genuine threat to really understand the other kind when you truly recognize the threat of sin you'll want the power to deal with it you will want the power to deal with it when you understand that and paul threatens to come deal powerfully with sin in corinth and those that are leading it because repentance has been ignored in the church and it's becoming very dangerous for the corinthians to continue to listen to these leaders so that's uh where we're at today look in second corinthians chapter 13 uh, I'm going to read verse 2, and uh, here we go. He says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Man, that's powerful. He says, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him but in dealing with you we will live with him by the power of god let me uh, pray lord thank you so much for your word it is so awesome thank you as always for the privilege of being able to teach it and unpack it but ultimately father as always it is your word it's not mine i'm just a student i'm here to learn from you i love the opportunity to study and 
and open my mouth to speak it, but it's yours. I don't ever want to put my word into yours. I want your word into me. And I ask these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a super popular series. I've uh, been out for several years now called Stranger Things. It's on Netflix. If you've seen it, cool. If not, that's all right. But it's about a girl who has this inner strength and it's sci-fi. Look, it's not the Bible, so let's not even go there. Let's not get twisted. It's just sci-fi. But she appears in the story. If you go back to the beginning, she appears in the story as this kind of skinny, super frail, scared, sad girl. She's Her head is shaved, and she doesn't really know where she is to some degree. She doesn't even have her na- know her name. She just goes by 11, uh, number 11. And she doesn't know her past, but she's escaped from this lab where she's been studied um, and she ends up meeting some kids her age, and she befriends them, and she's still shy and frightened and weak as she kind of gets to know these new friends, but there's this great power that's within her, all right? However, she chooses to remain weak for the sake of her friends. She's, she's, she's focused on them until ultimately she faces this powerful darkness and these old enemies that return and begin to threaten not only her but her new friends. And so she uses her power then. It's kind of like mind control thing. You have to watch it. But she uses her power then to defend her friends. All right? It would have been foolish to underestimate Eleven. That's the name she went by. It would be foolish to underestimate Eleven based on what she, the weakness that appeared on the surface. Because within her was this major, major power, this unseen power. And her heart was connected With love for her friends. And those friends then saw both her weakness and her power. But her power was still frightening when it was experienced even to her friends. And Paul, in not exactly the same way, but kind of in a similar way, Paul is telling the Corinthians here something of the same. He may appear weak, and in fact he's taken that position um, in order to befriend them. To serve them, to create family with them, um, to sacrifice himself for them just like Christ had done. But enemies have now begun to overtake them. And they're now starting to doubt Paul as being weak. But what's within Paul is the same power that conquered death. That's Christ. Christ within Paul. And he will continue to display that power. Excuse me, he will come to display that power and I'll have to say, as Paul does, that they don't want to see that. They, they don't want to see that. And sometimes we find ourselves between two voices of influence, kind of where these Corinthians are. Some, on the one hand, they appear weak when they're truly, really powerful. Their weakness actually comes from a position of authority. And their humility is for the benefit of other people. On the other hand, some appear powerful when they're truly weak. And they talk like they're an authority, but in reality, they have nothing to offer anybody. So today, Paul spills the truth about these kinds of people. That's what's going on here. That it's very dangerous for us to listen to these kind of people. And that we need to deal powerfully with sin, especially when repentance is being ignored in the church. Now, there's two steps that are happening here. One is an evaluation of sin, and then one is a, a threat to deal with sin. Those are the two steps that Paul is kind of working through here. An evaluation of sin, and then a threat to deal with it. So let's look at the evaluation of sin that he puts out here first. In Second Corinthians 12, back up a couple of verses, verse 20. For I fear 
that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. Man, he goes off, right? He says, for I fear. So he's building on a previous statement. The previous statement was verse 19. He says, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. What Paul's saying here is that his words and his deeds, they haven't been to gain personal praise or to gain power or to somehow make people see him as an authority. He hasn't been for that. It's been for their growth out of love for him in Christ. Paul represents Christ. That's what he's saying. Paul, Christ is in Paul. Paul represents Christ. And out of love, Paul also has Christ's authority. But Paul's not expecting them to understand that, clearly. Because he's saying, if he came and found them in continuous sin, then that's not going to be the way he wished. And then they would find him coming with judgment, which is not the way they wished. That's what he's saying here. Note that Paul's not saying either that there is sin in the church. He's not saying that. But he's evaluated the situation. And he's feeling certain of what is happening there. So much so that he gets specific about it. All right? But before we get too judgmental on these Corinthians, let's consider how we're doing with this same list. So as we walk down this list, before we just throw the Corinthians under the bus as being garbage and poor old Paul having to continually deal with them, let's just take our own little church and our own personal faith and stick it in here too as we go. Okay, so first he says quarreling. I love that's right at the top. Quarreling is right at the top. The picture here is of children fighting over something that doesn't matter at all. Fighting over something that has no merit for a fight. Bring that into the church. The color of the carpet. The color of the walls. Uh, the lights that are being used. The quality of the lights that are being used. <laughs> the music. Oh, here we go. You know, the volume of the music. Man, we're just getting crazy, right? The, the, uh, the way that the uh, stage is laid out. The height of the stage. The hardness of the chairs. Man, we can just go on and on. It's not that we shouldn't consider th these things. It's quarreling over them that's an issue. It's like arguing politics. Most of the time, you're not changing anything. You're just making people mad and dividing further by arguing about it, right? Social media, by the way, is an epic catalyst for quarreling. I mean, you know, we all know that. Number two on the list is jealousy. Hey, man, why does she get to do that? Why does she get to do that? Why is he the one that you're going to pull for this? Don't you know what I, that's me. That's what I do. Why are you put, why are you looking at him? You know, when do I get my shot? You know, you giving it this guy and this person, when do I get my shot? That's jealousy. And you can test your jealousy level, by the way. This is free. You could test your jealousy level right now. Even if you don't believe you are jealous at all, you can test it right now. How often do you celebrate? proactively here not reactively how often do you celebrate proactively another person who's been honored with something particularly that you really wanted to do just think about that a minute go back if you don't have something in the present go back in the past and think over it when's the time that you proactively celebrated someone else getting to do something you really wanted to do um 
And note that these things that Paul's listening here, they're not what we consider serious sins. You know what I mean? They're not like stealing money and embezzlement or adultery or violent acts of uh, abuse or murder. I mean, these are little simple things, right? But Paul goes on. Remember, this is a church. The next two are likely results of the first two. Quarreling and jealousy result in anger. Know what anger is? Anger promotes a sinful response, which is hostility. What he's saying, and still the list goes on. Hostility moves into slander. Slander is malicious talk. It's like hateful talk behind somebody's back. And though you may not think it's, you might think it is innocent, excuse me, but gossip is next, right? Gossip's not malicious. Gossip's just talking behind somebody's back. But here Paul puts it right on the list. It's right there. The difference really between the two, slander is saying, uh, she's so stupid and annoying because blah, blah, blah. Gossip is saying, have you heard how stupid and annoying she is because blah, blah, blah? It's the same thing. Just because you ask it in the form of a question as though you're spreading information, it's, it's the same thing. Both are done behind the back. Slander, maliciousness, and gossip, whether malicious or not, result in the next thing, conceit. That's like self-centered pride. I won't focus on me. You're talking about everybody else. You're doing all these things because you want to focus on you. And ultimately, all of that, I would say, leads to disorder. I think I don't think Paul is making a math problem, but it worked out that way. It all leads to disorder. Disorder is confusion, anarchy, same word, rebellion, same word. Look in verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Important note here, the players. Notice he's saying, you, that'd be the Corinthian church, me, that's him, and the we that are with him. And then there's those he's talking about, okay? So so those are there in the Corinthian church, but it's bigger than just the false apostles, super apostles, whatnot. It's, it's his group he's referring to as the those. He says, I fear, now, again, this is the second time, he made that statement. And I believe, again, here, there's a hint of sarcasm in what he's saying. It's rhetorical talk. It's like saying, uh, you know, I'm afraid things are exactly the way that I know them to be. You know, I don't know if any of y'all are Star Wars fans, but back in the original day, there was Star Wars in the second movie, Empire Strikes Back. And in the Empire Strikes Back movie, uh, rebel forces are planning to attack the Empire and they've sent these spies in to destroy the Empire's power force shield thing um, in order to make them vulnerable to defeat. And uh, there's a conversation that's had towards the end of the movie between the Emperor of the Empire and the uh, Jedi hero of the Rebellion. The two are standing there talking. And the Emperor tells the Jedi that he is fully aware of this little secret plan and these spies that are trying to take down this force shield. And he says, oh, I'm afraid the deflector shield will be quite operational when your friends arrive. All right? He's not really afraid of that. That's sarcasm. I think that's what uh, Paul's kind of doing here. He says he has a concern of being humbled. I think he's afraid of being embarrassed or concerned about being embarrassed before God. My God will humble me in front of you. Paul is saying is y'all are my spiritual children. Like God hold, I believe what Paul is saying is y'all, these are my spiritual children. You guys are my spiritual children. And he's my God and he put you into my care. 
And look what you're doing. Paul's more afraid of disappointing God than disappointing them. Major issue was sin that some, maybe many here, practiced and hadn't repented of. That's the major issue. It's not just that there was sin. Sin happens. The major issue is that they practiced it and had not repented of it. It's not just the false apostles here he's talking about. It's those. It's a bigger group. They've been this way. They're not new to the church. They've been in the church. These people have remained in the church, and the church has not dealt with them. And Paul's afraid that these people's sin has now infected the church as a whole and, and it's started to change them also as a whole. He says impurity. He gives three more sins here and these are weighty ones. He says impurity. That's basically, it's basically immorality, um, especially used in language related to sexual sin, this word he's talking about. It's the idea of dirtiness. It's like a cultic type language, like a, a corrupted, dirty, wicked um, sexual immorality. Now, he says sensuality, that's to give in to what feels good, man. Just abandon yourself to it, man. Whatever pleasures you desire, if you enjoy it, you go after it. Whatever your senses find and want, that's it, sensuality. Sexual immorality seems pretty clear, but the language is really kind of latent towards a prostitute or prostitution and sex outside of marriage, fornication, that kind of thing. The idea is clearly just basically sexual acts that have no morality tied to it whatsoever. Sexual sin has been a huge problem with Corinth the whole time. That's why some people compare it to Vegas, because sex is key and a huge issue there. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in his first letter, he wrote this in verse 1. It's actually reported that there's a se- there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Put him out. And Paul made clear then that he was talking to, about sin in the church and not just in the world. Look what he said in verse 9. He said, after he talked some more about it, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. In other words, he's saying, though this is 1 Corinthians for us, this is not the first letter he'd written to them. And he's saying in a previous letter, I've already told you. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning that sexual immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, I'm not saying keep away from it among the people who are lost because then you'd have to just stay away from them. And you're supposed to go into the world. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality. He's saying if it's a believer who is owning that lifestyle, then get away from them. Get away from them. But it would appear to some degree that it was being allowed still now, Paul says, and worse, uh, maybe even endorsed by these false apostles and whoever the they are that have joined to them. And honestly, that's a lot like today, man. I'm just being honest with you. Look, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to feel good. Sensuality. God wants you to feel good. Hey, God wants you to get what you want, what you deserve. God created sex. It's love. Uh, or, or pleasures at the peak of the mountaintop. That's where God, where you're closest to God at the highest moments of the pleasure. It feels good. It's God, right? Deny yourself nothing. God created it all. You know, or, or maybe, here in Corinth, they've connected sex with spirituality and 
rituals, you know, much like temple prostitutes did back in the day of Samson and for generations afterwards where you could go in and pay a prostitute and have an act of sex that, that, that in doing so somehow or another offered worship to God, you know. Cult leaders today. You know, Manson was that way. David Koresh was that way. I forget the guy's name, but the fundamentalist uh, Latter-day Saint guy, you know, that, that surround themselves with all these sexual opportunities because of wives, women, girls. Anyway, Paul says these people are poison. Put them out. Unlike the cult leaders, these people are not just you've got these false apostles, but then they've drawn in some people that are believers but are embracing that lifestyle of sin. They haven't repent. Put them out. Put them out. You know, I've been reading a diary here lately of an American soldier uh, during the Civil War times. And he was uh, part of the Native American battles as well that came during the westward expansion. His name was John Criminy. And he wrote about numerous encounters, particularly with the Apaches in the late 1860s. In the area that's now known as New Mexico, Arizona, where we are, and kind of parts of northern Mexico. And he's among the first white men to be seen by many of uh, the Apaches. But he records one encounter with an Apache hunter, and I think it illustrates pretty wildly here what uh, Paul's dealing with. He says, I'm going to read this directly from his diary. He says, my attention was soon afterward arrested by a number of antelopes feeding on the plain, not more than a half a mile distant. Anxious to procure one, I left the party and galloping in the direction of the herd, arrived within 500 yards of it when I dismounted and tying my horse to a yucca bush, proceeded cautiously on foot, carbine, rifle in hand. Crawling from bush to bush and hiding behind every stone which offered any shelter, I got within handsome range of a fine buck and feeling sure that the animal could not escape me, I raised to fire when, just as I was taking aim, I was astonished to see the animal raise up erect upon his hind legs and heard it cry out in fair Spanish, No tiros, no liras. Don't fire, don't fire. What I would have sworn was an antelope proved to be a young Indian, the son of Ponce, a chief, who having enveloped himself in an antelope skin with head, horns, and all complete, had gradually crept up to the herd under his disguise until his operations were brought to an untimely end by perceiving my aim directed at him. He says, The Apaches frequently adopt this method of hunting and imitate the actions of the antelope so exactly as to completely mislead those animals with the belief that their deadliest enemy is one of their number. Just let that sink in. I'm not even going to comment on it. Paul says an evaluation of sin, and then he says a threat to deal with it. And this is quick. A threat to deal with it. Excuse my nose is itching, so pardon me for being weird. But it's camera, once again. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, note real quick, this is not the first time. This is not the second time. This is the third time that he's threatening to come deal with this personally, in person, besides the fact that he's already written about it as well. 1 Corinthians 4.19 says, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, this is back in 1 Corinthians, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. 
For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So what do you want? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? Well, that was the question then. That was that letter. This is this letter. Now it's an outright threat. Now it's, it was a choice before. Now it's the rod. No more choice. No more choice. And he says two or three witnesses. Um, that's a reference to Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 that says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong or connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That was the law given from God to Moses for the people back at Mount Sinai. Well, Paul uses that in this context related to church discipline. And Paul's not the first one. Jesus did the same exact thing in Matthew 18, 16. Used the same reference to deal with discipline among believers and how to handle it. So Paul is following Jesus' path as well. Paul had Titus. Paul had Timothy. Paul had the we that he always refers to. And he says, we were this and we were that among you and we came to you. So all of these people, besides the ones at Corinth that knew it already, these sinful issues that are going on. So the point that Paul's making here is that discipline was going to come and they were responsible for participating in it because they were witnesses or else they were fixing to be the victim of judgment for it. But hold on, because why do we get anxious to go, go Paul, man, go get him, Paul, and like cheer Paul on, but angrily oppose this approach in our own church? Just let that, I know, just let that hit you a minute. Why do we cheer Paul on for taking that attitude and coming at sin like all that, but then we get upset with that same approach in our own church? If a pastor takes a strong public stance against sin, he, I'm not talking about sin outside the church, I'm talking about sin in the church. He's condemned for being too judgmental or too extreme. This ought to be quiet. We, we, we shouldn't be, you know. How would the church, listen to me, how would the church today, your church maybe, my, my, our church, the church you're watching, Salt River, however, how would the church today, the people of God, react if someone spoke to them the way Paul's speaking right here? If, if the pastor of your church, or if it were Salt River and it were me, if we were speaking to the church the way he's speaking now, how would people react today? I'm just saying. Look at verse 2. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Again, powerful language. I don't care how you read it. That is a threat. That is an outright threat. And it's powerful threat on them, on all those who have followed them, rather than dealing with them or disciplining them. Verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God, for we are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. He starts out with, you want proof that Christ is in me? You want proof? Wow, that's scary to think about. You want proof? You want proof? Some scary talk. Whatever his actions are going to be, they're with the same power, he says, that sends someone to their crucifixion and also raises someone from the dead. I don't even know if Paul knew what, what, what things were going to look like or what that was going to be like, but he was quite certain Christ would be displayed in him powerfully. Um, 
What does crucified in weakness mean? Was Jesus too weak to resist, you know, being forced to go to the cross? Is that what happened? No. It was humility. It was humility to serve. That's what it was. He humbled himself in weakness so that he might be crucified for us. Death is the ultimate weakness. Death is absolute weakness. It's proof that you are limited. It's proof that you are mortal. It is proof that you are a human being, that you are man, that you are created. You die. And becoming a man like us and dying, that was not a powerful act. A miracle, yes. Amazing, yes. But not a powerful act. It was a weak and humble act. Finding power, though, in weakness is something familiar to anyone who knows Jesus Christ. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek want wisdom. Uh, these guys are like obviously wanting proof that Christ is in him. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. In other words, the Jews stumble all around it but don't see it, and it's a joke to Gentiles. He says, but to those who are called, that would be believers, us, whether Jew or Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Look at this. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus was not acting in weakness alone, Paul says, but by absolute power of God alone because he rose from the dead and conquered the very sin that he died for. Just as Jesus had made himself weak, human and humble and a servant for the sake of the lost people of the world here, so had Paul for them, for the Corinthians. And just as Jesus' power over sin was displayed in his resurrection from the dead, so would Paul assume a powerful role of judgment on sin with the Corinthians. And that display would be the evidence that they're looking for, that Christ was in him, although they would regret seeing it, but before you take the position of Paul in all this, and man, yep, Paul, we got to deal with sin, man, let's go get it, whatever, and threaten to deal with somebody else's sin or sin in the church before you jump on that bandwagon, just two more words, Second Corinthians 13, verse 5, two more words, examine yourself. Take a moment, evaluate sin in your own life. Make a clear threat and declaration on that sin that you're going to deal with it. Jesus said it like this in Luke 6, 41. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? That's evaluation of sin. Uh, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. That's threat. That's declaration. You're going to deal with it. I'm going to get this out of me. So then put teeth to your declaration and deal powerfully with that sin, whatever it is, in the power of Christ who died for your sins and leaving your sins dead in the grave. He defeated that power by rising to give you new life. The most powerful way to deal with sin is to first be reminded regularly who you are in Christ. That's the biggest key here. Paul reminds them as a church body that Christ is not weak among them. He's not weak among them as though he was still on the cross. But no, he's powerful among them. Why? Because he's the one who rose from the grave and conquered their sin. 
And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us as believers today. Individually and as part of the body of Christ. As Salt River Community Church, as the global uh, collection of God's people and churches around the world. And as me, David, and you, whoever you are watching this. But as part of the body of Christ, the church, we also, yes, we also do need to evaluate sin in the body of Christ. We need to do that. And we need to make a clear threat and declaration that we're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it. But also not, not arrogantly. Remember, Paul, this is Paul's third time. Paul's third time now coming to deal with it. Besides all the written letters that he's done and the multiple witnesses and people, spiritual leaders that he's sent to them. So he didn't jump on this really quick. Again, Jesus put it this way back at that same passage in Luke six forty two. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your, that's in your eye when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. People leave that off. He didn't just say, hey, well, let your brother go on with that speck in his eye. You deal with your log. No, he said, get the log out so that you can see clearly. So we still have a responsibility to face this in the body, face sin in the church and deal with it, yes. So how do we respond? Well, really quickly, Warren Wearsby said in a very simple way, false teaching leads to false, li- leads to false living. False teaching leads to false living. That sounds like a duh, but sometimes we need to hear it. So first, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Why them? Second, take a look at your life. Take a look at your life. Is there sin somewhere that you're holding on to and allowing it to guide you? So first, who are you listening to? Second, look at your own life. Is there sin you're holding on to, not repenting of, that you are allowing to guide you? And then third, how about the believers around you? Remember, it doesn't have to be considered extreme. Gossip was in the list, guys. How about the people around you? Sin is sin. How are you doing with that list and how are you helping guide them? As a church, quarreling, is that in your church? I hope I hope not. I mean, I, I know we're a church too. I'm just speaking because this is going on the internet to whoever. So quarreling, is that there? Jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, sexual immorality, sensuality, immorality. Are those things going on in your church? Need to call them out. Need to call them out and then deal with them. So the ultimate message here, though, is the power of God versus the power of sin. If you boil all this down, there's a huge picture here of the power of sin and the power of God who conquered death by becoming sin for us. It's not about Paul and the Corinthians. It's about God and mankind. Sin is the cancer within us that causes us to do sinful things. We sin because we're a sinner. It's not our sins that make us one. It's the other way around. It is ultimately what drags us to our death. It's the reason we say things like nobody's perfect. Sin in us leads us to sin and drags us to death. But the same power that that raised Jesus from the grave is available to you today. If you don't know him, listen to me. It's available to you today. It's the only thing powerful enough to deal with the sin inside you. The only thing. But it requires a decision. 
repentance and faith. Can you trust that what you're hearing is the truth? Can you put your faith in Jesus? Can you look at the cross and say, I trust that you took my sin to that cross? I trust that your sacrifice is good enough because my best deeds will never be good enough. Can you say that? Can you trust that? And then can you repent and say, you know what? I don't want to go this way anymore. I don't want to go this way anymore. I want to follow you. You lead me. You have me. You guide me. Tell them those things today, please. And then tell us so we can pray with you, pray for you, and help lead you to become a disciple. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is so awesome, as always. I pray, God, you write it into our hearts into our minds, into our words, into our deeds. Help us be able to share it with others for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.